During the first session, we reviewed the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 through 13, again, which is at the enjoyment of God's blessing under a good spiritual leader, will not shield you from his judgment if you displease him. And we gave there are, we say there are three primary reasons for giving this, the message as we did. The first one was that the Holy Spirit conveyed through the apostle that the death of majority of the Israelites in the desert is because God is displeased with them. The second reason is that the death of uh, some of them is simply to dissuade us, believers, from following their evil desires. That's stated in verse 6. Therefore, we examine four examples of evil desires that include idolatry, sexual immorality, uh, putting God to the test, and grumbling. Then we consider the third reason, that's why we really started the third reason for this message being presented the way we did, is that Israel's experience in the desert is written down for us as examples and warning. So, based on that, we indicated that verse 11, which is where we began really, that verse 11 should be seen as a continuation of verse 6. We went through a series of arguments to show why we say that, although we indicated that from verses 7 through 10, from what we may call an anachloton, in other words, a digression, that because it's a digression, what we may say in parentheses, it's put in parentheses. Therefore, the verse 11 goes back to verse 6, where the apostle talked about example, and that he continued in uh, verse 11. So we went through there, and then having established that the apostle was actually resuming his uh, thoughts, that he started in verse 6. Then we say that verse, seven then, uh, verse 11 then, especially the sentence, these things happen to them as examples. That that, when the apostle wrote that, he was not only thinking about the experiences, but the situations that led to those experiences. In other words, the first temptations that they faced, which I said, unless we understand that, to talk about temptation in verse 13 would not make sense. So it's because he was thinking about those various situations, and I gave you examples of the things that they were tempted, that if they had passed, we wouldn't read what we had in, in Numbers, for example, where God killed um, 24,000 of them. So with that, we began to look at uh, more in detail with the verbal phrase, we are written down as warning to us. We made a distinction between warning and admonition to say there are two different things although sometimes they look around like they are the same but uh, a warning is mostly a cautionary advice to somebody telling about the consequences of what will happen if this and that happened whereas uh, admonition is really a way of correcting someone in a loving manner so with that we began to Look at the very first thing that that sentence, uh, the verbal phrase, and we're written down as warning to us that that means that we should have great respect for the Old Testament scriptures, unlike the heretic Macon of the second century who produce a Bible that didn't involve the Old Testament. He just removed all the Old Testament. So we shouldn't even touch it. Because, as you recall, he said the God of the Old Testament is a God who is harsh, severe, and merciful as his laws. That was a, a quote that I gave from him. 
So, with that in mind, we continue to say that we must have a great respect for the Old Testament scripture. So the point is what that's why we really begin to emphasize the second half. In other words, that a point we are emphasizing in in the uh, in the verbal phrase of First Corinthians ten, where uh, eleven, where it says we are written down. That that was written down for our, us. That this should then remind us of the importance of having great respect for the Old Testament scripture. Now, having respect for Old Testament scripture requires that we should meditate carefully in the narratives in the Old Testament scripture so that we learn truths intended to warn us about conduct to be avoided and to warn us about God's judgment. Now, so having that respect means that you should learn how to meditate through the Old Testament scripture. Now to make my point, let me illustrate with two examples from the book of Genesis. One of them, of course, we have studied this, so it's not really new to you per se, although it may have been like 20 years ago, I imagine. So take the, the first example involves Abimelech taking Abraham's wife into his harem. The narrative is given in Genesis 20, verses 1 through 7. Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. It is now Abraham moved on from there into the region of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shor. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. The God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone, uh, gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister. And then she also say, he's my brother. I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will leave. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Now the narrative here, not merely tells us of what happened to Abraham as he was wandering in the land of Canaan, But to teach us, or to warn us, that adultery is a sin not tolerated by God. Now it draws his judgment on the person that gets involved in it. Now this is communicated in God's judgment on Abimelech and his household. We know that the Lord inflicted punishment on Abimelech. And his household because he brought into his harem a married woman. Now, the way we know that he was uh, uh, judged 
is that he and his household received healing from God once Abraham prayed for him as stated in Genesis 20, look at verses 17 through 18. See, hold on to Genesis He said then Abraham prayed to God And God healed Abimelech His wife And he slave God So they could have children For the Lord had closed up every womb In Abimelech's household Because of Abraham's wife now again, see, when you read these things in the Old Testament, or in the Bible, you just think it's something that happened today, tomorrow. Or yesterday, today, tomorrow. No. Look at, because of what we have just seen here, it's at least something that may have taken place at least three months. At least. Minimum. In order to know that the, uh, the servants and the wives couldn't get pregnant. So we won't have looked at something that took place in months. But if you read it, just reading it, and you just think, okay, it happened today, tomorrow. No, no. So these are things that you have to slow down when you're reading the Old Testament. Because what we're having is something compact, compacted for us, whereas it's a scene that took place in some time years. But when it's narrated, it just looks like it happened today, the next, and so on. Anyway, anyway, so we really should learn from the narrative of this incident in Genesis 20, to be warned against idolatry and hence sexual immorality as it is the same sin mixed with idolatry that led God to killing of 24,000 Israelites who were involved with mother women and their idols. Again, sometimes we do not recognize that uh, yes, God is still doing the same thing today. But... Uh, because, as we saw in the first half, people do not associate their uh, pain and suffering with God speaking to them in one way or the other. So there are people today who are suffering tremendously because they took somebody's wife, took somebody's husband. And there are those God actually removed from this planet because of it. I mean, God is always gracious. There are those who, yes, you may sin and you quickly come out of your senses and ask for his forgiveness. He forgives you, but have a lingering uh, part of judgment on that individual. Nonetheless, this passage is, this narrative is put there to warn us how serious God looks at idolatry. A second example that illustrates our point that having respect for Old Testament scripture requires that we should meditate carefully in the Old Testament narrative scripture so that we learn truths intended to warn us about conduct to be avoided. And God's judgment is the incident that involved the death of Anan, son of Judah. Now, for those of you who haven't been here when I thought this, I know there are some people who are what I call squeamish. In other words, they say, why is he saying this kind of thing in the pulpit? But they go home and do worse than what they had. But people say, well, that's an awful thing. Yeah, they go behind their clothes or they do some awful things. But my position is always, I'm not going to hold back no matter how anyone thinks about it. When, he, when I see it in the Bible, I'm going to explain it as the Lord leads me. And this is one of those passages that I'm going to pick up now that uh, some of you may say, wow, there are some young people or all that, you know, why you even, even go there? Well, I go there because God went there first. And this is Genesis chapter 38, verses 6 through 10. Genesis chapter 38 verses 6 through 10. 
reads Judah got a wife for Earl, his firstborn, and her name was Tema. But Earl, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring will not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So, he put him to death also. Now, this narrative given here is not merely to tell us of the sex life of Judah's children or the sex saga that played out in his family or even to tell us that there was a kind of contraception in the ancient world known as coitus interruptus as such or really to tell us about leverage marriage but it contains an important message of warning to all of us there, there are those who have focused on the fact that this passage supports prohibition against contraceptive methods because such, they say, is an attack on God's command to populate the world. So they attack any kind of contraception. Others focus on the fact that God killed Onan because of his selfishness in not wanting to share uh, the inheritance or their father's inheritance with sons that might result if he carried out fully the leverage marriage that he undertook. Now all these make sense in the context. But as we stated, there is an important message the narrative contained upon reflection of Anand's effort to shock off the responsibility in leverage marriage. So this message, among others, is this. That there is no such thing as free sex. It doesn't mean more than anything. There's no such thing as free sex. Now sexual relationship requires responsibility of firm commitment to a woman in marriage. Not in other words, commitment in marriage. Thus, the narrative serves to warn us against having sex without the true commitment that's expected in marriage. Thus, that a person should understand that just because there's no pregnancy, in sexual immorality, since there is no, uh, this is some concern for some people, the, that free sex is abhorrent to God. This is to me, this is one of those things, uh, I'm not here explaining one or the other because I've done that when we studied uh, Genesis. This is one of those things that when I, I listen to people, I mean Christians, they gravitate to the lowest point instead of actually dealing with the facts, with the reality. What am I talking about? We hear too much about abortion by Christians. But how many times do you hear about them talking about sexual immorality? That leads to that. So we go to the weakest point and talk about. And we don't talk about this free sex that exists in our culture. We don't talk about it. I mean, we glorify all these things. You see, that's where we Christians have failed. 
We don't talk about the main issue. We look at the result. What brought that about? Don't hear about that. Because it is more sentimental or whatever it is to talk about abortion. But don't talk about sexual immorality. That leads to it to begin with. See? That's how we function these days. Instead of looking at what the Bible says. Anyway, so the point though is even if there's no pregnancy, God, as far as God is concerned, sex is abhorrent to him if it is not done within marriage bounds. That's the issue. That's what the whole thing is, more than anything else. So that, okay, well, you know, we agreed on it. No, no one is harmed. That is satanic. This, this passage, this narrative, is given to us to caution us. There's no such thing as free sex. And when a man has sex with a woman, that woman must be his wife. That's it. Committed. So that's the issue here. Anyway, but this message I've given you is one that is derived from a careful meditation of the passage. So that's why we say we have to do a careful meditation of the Old Testament scripture in order to know what it's saying. And if that as you may, we should recognize that part of the reason pastors or believers do not take the Old Testament scripture seriously is that they do not dwell on the narratives of a given section long enough to understand the reason the Holy Spirit provided a given passage. Especially in those passages that are concerned with genealogical records. Now, if we dwell long enough in meditating such passages, we will recognize the reason or message in it. So let me illustrate this. So I've given you one that's much easier to grasp and see the lesson in it or the message in it. But let's just look at one that just you read it. Say, why is that? What's all that about? So let me give you an example of that. Let's look at Exodus chapter 6 verses 14 through 27. Exodus chapter 6 verses 14 through 27. It is These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanak and Paulu, Hezron and Kami. These were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jamal, Jamin, Ahad, Jekin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. These were the names of the sons of Levi according to their records. Geshon, Kohat, and Merari lived, uh, I mean, Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Geshon by clans were Libni and Shimea. The sons of Kohat were Amram, Isa, Hebron, and Israel. Kohat lived 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi according to the records. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Esha were Korah, Nephek, and Zikri. The sons of Uzziel were Mishael, Elzaphan and Shitri. 
Aaron married Elisheba, daughter of Aminadab, and sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithmael. The sons of Korah were Isha, Elkanah, and Abisav. These were the Koharite clans. Eliezer, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. It was this man, Aaron, and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out by their division. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. That's why you read that. So why do I saw that? Now you see, you look at it. On a surface reading, someone may conclude that this genealogical uh, matter that is focused on the tribe of Levi is not necessary. Concerning Moses' role as the agent of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Since this section could have been omitted without doing any damage to the flow of the narrative of Moses' commission to deliver Israel from bondage. Now you see the whole thing is here. God, God doesn't just do anything. Sometimes we may think we do something without a reason. I doubt it, but many times we think so. It's very difficult for anyone to do something without a reason. Even those who are impulsive, as they say. But the thing is, when you read this, why will God do that? Why, why all this? I just read to you. And I'm sure, well, I won't say I'm sure, but I would think that most of you, when you get to that passage of the Bible, if you're reading through the Bible, you just run through it and there's nothing to it. Because you can't find anything. But my point is, on meditating, we find something. So here, if we meditate long enough, and reflect long enough, concerning this section, we see that it was included, probably, for the purpose of giving dignity to Aaron, the older brother of Moses, who will from here on, in the narrative of Exodus, become the second actor in the whole narrative of Israel's deliverance. Furthermore, this dignity is necessary because he will eventually become the first high priest of Israel. Hence, it was necessary to indicate that his family lineage as one that is rooted in Israel. So that everything about him is from Israel. There's no foreigner anywhere, nothing, just Israel. Now there is at least one more truthful uh, principle that, we, that can be garnished from this section, from the fact that although the passage is focused on the family line of Levi, now, in other words, these are things we have to think through. It's not easy. That's why I don't think, you know, teaching the Bible is not for the faint hearted, as they say. It was a lot of time. Which many of us pastors don't have. I don't know what we have a time to do anyway. But we don't have that. But it requires a lot of thinking. A lot of reflecting. So, upon further reflection, you ask yourself, okay, we're given began with Reuben, began with Simeon, then to Levi and stop right there. Why not the rest of it? Why don't you just stop there? So these are things that help us to reflect and think about through uh, some principles. So that's based on that reflection. That's why I say there is at least one more truthful principle that can be garnished from this section from the fact that although the passage is focused on the family line of Levi, but Moses did not begin his list with Levi. 
who is the third son of Israel. Instead, he began with the truncated lineage of the first two sons of Jacob, that is Reuben and Simeon. So the significance of the fact that he did that is to communicate the principle of importance of recognizing seniority in any family. Now this is something that we so many times even in practice as Christians we don't realize. The Bible recognizes seniority. That's why I know, I know the law, I'm not that's the law as they put it, but it's not really biblical. Now you take for example when the when parents are faced with distributing their inheritance, they more or less divide it equally. That's wrong. That's not biblical. The oldest child son in this case really should have a larger portion of whatever it is. That is a biblical principle. Because the Bible recognizes seniority that the you know society we don't recognize it. Part of it. We don't have respect for uh, those who are our elders anyway. We're talking to them, dress them anywhere we like. We have no respect. And that is part of what's reflected. Now the Bible is very clear that the, the first son must have a double portion. That's the biblical principle. But we don't follow that. Now part of it is because we don't recognize that there is such a thing as seniority putting in God's word that must be adhered to. So part of what you can garnish from this passage I read to you is this issue of uh, seniority. Anyway, we could say more, but what we have said is sufficient to prove the point that if we dwell long enough on a passage of the Old Testament scripture, the Holy Spirit will enable us to garnish its message so that we will not have a myopic view of the Old Testament scripture. So anyway, the point we're emphasizing is that the verbal phrase of 1 Corinthians 10:11, we are written down as warning for us to remind us firstly of the importance of having respect for the Old Testament scripture. Now, remember when I said the Apostle Paul, he does a lot of anagolutin. I just did that here. That's what I did. All this thing I went through, they all anagolutin because it's, it's not domain in that particular passage. But I went through all that to come back again to the point. So, but this is unnecessary. That's what teaching does. Is it expands your knowledge of things. Taking a simple thing and you go through a lot of things and come back. Anyway, so secondly, the verbal phrase of 1 Corinthians 10, 11, where it says, we are written down as warning for us, should remind us of the importance of the scripture in the spiritual life of the believer. That phrase. Again, we are written down as warning for us. Again, I say, that should remind us the importance of the scripture in the spiritual life of the believer. It is this fact that is also conveyed by the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. It reads, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scripture we might have hope. See what it says. Everything written in the past has a purpose to teach us. So that's why we cannot be sloppy. We cannot be impatient. We cannot hurry when we're reading those things written in the past. So we can know what is teaching us. Now our scripture then is intended both to admonish us when we fail and to warn us 
about the consequences of sin in the life of the believer. In other words, this verbal phrase were written down as warning for us to remind us of an important function of the scripture as stated in the passage I cited previously. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Now, uh, you, you don't have to judge it, I'm just listening and read it. It reads, All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, see the phrase for teaching, rebuking, Correcting is concerned with both warning and admonition as well as providing general instruction of the Christian doctrine. The scripture corrects us regarding our failures and provides us the consequences for going against God. So we understand that. that that's why it's important. And I have to put this, maybe a preview of coming sometime, is what we're going to study in the future. Here's the thing. If you and I actually live by the Bible, we'll have much less headache on this planet. So we can't be totally free from it because of the original fall. But if we live by the Bible, our, I'm telling you, you walk around in the air. Our problems, we don't do that. And that's why we are in the way we are. But if we live at the Bible, we'll sure we'll have a more pleasant, enjoyable life. Some of you, no doubt, are enjoying your life with the Lord and all that. But just think about it. If we could do more, uh, more living according to the Bible, if we take the Bible very seriously, Make it the most important thing in our lives than any other thing. And we'll be in a place that we'll know how, what to do with ourselves, so to say. Anyway, so that's the third thing about this, verb, I mean, second thing about this verbal phrase. We're written down as warning for us to remind us of the importance of Scripture in our lives. Thirdly, the verbal phrase of 1 Corinthians 10 11. We are written down as warning for us, reminds us that pastors or spiritual leaders should be involved in both admonition and warning of believers as part of their function. Now, Israel's prophets were involved in warning the people as we may gather. For example, from Second Kings chapter 17 verse 13. Second Kings chapter 17 verse 13. Second Kings chapter 17 verse 13 reads, The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. So the prophets were used to warn. Now the Lord instructed prophet Ezekiel to deliver his warning to Israel. As we read in Ezekiel chapter 3 verses 16 through 19. Ezekiel Chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. 
It is at the end of seven days, the word of God came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So, hear the word I speak and give them a warning for, from me. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life. That wicked man will die for his sin and I will hold you accountable for his blood. Now personally, this is one of those passages that makes me go the way I go. I don't care what anyone thinks about it. I have to tell you the truth because it is what God expects from anyone who is put in that kind of position. So if people don't like it, that's their business. But you don't want to be held accountable for another believer's soul for not doing what you're supposed to do. So that's why this is, like I always told you, to be a pastor is a very serious endeavor, right? But people think it's a you know, light thing or something, but it's not. Because of this thing here, I say, I will hold you accountable for his blood. But here's a good one. He said, But if you do want the wicked man, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. So that is to say, the pastors, we teach, we should tell people, it doesn't matter how uncomfortable it is. If you don't pay attention, that's between them and the Lord. We've done our job. We call it our function. We don't have to go around and see whether you're doing it. That's between you and him. But once our responsibility is to be sure we tell people in order to save ourselves from his judgment. So it is this function then of spiritual leaders uh, being involved in admonition and warning to believers that is a concern of the instruction of the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul to Timothy who, Timothy, by the way, who stands as a representative of all pastors or teaching elders of all local congregations. So he's given this instruction recorded in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 2 reads Preach the word Be prepared in season And out of season Look at the next thing Correct Rebuke And encourage With great patience And careful instruction Careful instruction That takes a lot of doing under the Holy Spirit to reach to what we call careful instruction. Now although the major responsibility of admonishing believers is with pastors of local congregation or the teaching elders as some people use, they don't use pastors, they use teaching elders. But really it is a function that all believers are expected to carry out towards each order. As instructed in Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. It reads, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you, here, here, you refer to every believer, not the pastor, so you, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So that there is a, a responsibility where each believer is supposed to teach another, each other in the sense of you hear truth taught by your teaching elder or your pastors, and you 
pass that information on to fellow believers. And that means if they go wrong, you, you can bring one of those and say, based on this will and this is, I think you're going in this way. It's not according to scripture. And then, that also requires humility on the part of the person doing it and the one hearing. Anyway, really we want to impress upon you that our scripture is given to us for, uh, for admonition and warning. We get into trouble spiritually because we do not uh, often know or remember what the scripture says or teaches about some of the things that we do. If you do not know your scripture, you are bound to be in error and expose yourself to God's displeasure. Now no wonder our Lord rebuked some of the Jews of his, of his earthly ministry who deny the doctrine of resurrection as being because they do not know the scripture as he denies them in Matthew chapter 22 verse 29. Matthew chapter 22 verse 29 it is Jesus replied you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God so we get in error when we don't know the scriptures so the point then is that our scripture is given to us both for admonition and warning. Therefore, we should be thoroughly devoted to learning it to keep us from God's displeasure. So be that as it may, the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul makes clear to the Corinthians and so to all of us that the examples of the experiences of those Israelites who died in the desert are intended for, uh, for them as well as for us believers since that is what is implied in the last clause of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 where it says on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Now, what really does the apostle mean in this uh, Clause when he says, Whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Now, to understand what he meant, we need to examine the key words or expressions he used. The first key word is the word fulfillment, because he said, Whom the fulfillment. That's, so, fulfillment, that is really translated from a Greek word that may mean end, end, as the last part of a process as Apostle Paul used it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 24 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 24 It reads, then the end, as the Greek word telos, telos, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, I mean, over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Now the word may mean end, as a goal towards which a movement is being directed, as it is used to indicate that Jesus Christ is the goal and the termination of the law in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Romans. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Hold on to that. It is, Christ is the end, tell us, 
of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now the Greek word may also mean result of an event or process with special focus upon the final state or condition as the word is used in the outcome of sinful living as we read in Romans 6 verse 21. Romans chapter 6 verse 21. It reads, What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Now majority of our English versions use the meaning end to translate a Greek word in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10.11. Now the meaning end in the sense of goal is used in the New Century Version. Now the 1984 edition of the NIV and the New English uh, Bible use the meaning fulfillment. While though the 2011 edition of the NIV and the International Standard Version both use the meaning culmination. Culmination. Now this notwithstanding, the sense of the word in our passage is really final stage. That should be the meaning in our passage. Instead of end, is if should mean final stage. Final stage. That is, of course, the concluding part of an event. Now, the second key word here is ages. Because it says, the, whom, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, that word ages is translated from a Greek word that may refer to a long period of time without reference to beginning or end. Hence, may simply mean long ago, as it is used to refer to Jesus Christ remaining in heaven until his final revelation in his second coming, as we read in Acts chapter 3, verse 21. Acts chapter 3. Verse 21. Acts 3, verse 21 reads He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as He promised long ago. That's the Greek, our Greek word, Aeon. Long ago through His holy prophets. Now, the word may mean age as a segment of time, as a particular unit of history. So it can refer to a present age as it is used to describe Satan's activity at the present time in Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four. Second Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 4 reads, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now the Greek word may also mean world in the sense of the created world or universe. As the translators of the NIV render the Greek word in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Hebrews 11, verse 3. Hebrews 11, verse 3. It reads, By faith, we understand. That the universe, that's a Greek word, here is translated universe. That the universe was formed at God's command, 
so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10-11, the word actually has a sense of error. Error. That is, a period of history having some distinctive feature. The third key word used in our expression that we're looking at, or the clause, is that the expression has come, has come. That is translated from a Greek word that literally may mean to get to a geographical destination, and so means to arrive, to reach, or to come. As that is the way it is used to describe the sheep carrying the apostle Paul to Rome, where he was expected to try a son's triumvirate. It is used for describing that sheep as carrying them or getting them to where they expected to winter, as we read in Acts chapter 27, verse 12. Acts chapter 27 verse 12 it reads since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in the majority decided that we should sail on hoping to reach that's a Greek word to reach uh, Phoenix and winter there this was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest now, figuratively, the word may mean to reach a condition or a goal, hence may mean to attain, as Apostle Paul used it to describe his hope of resurrection in Philippians 3, verse 11. Philippians chapter 3, verse 11. Hold on to that, Philippians. He reads, and so... Somehow to attain, that's a Greek word. Here it's translated to attain, somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 11, it really has the sense of to reach, to reach of a point in time or a certain state or level. Now, so the key words then that we have considered enable us to understand what the apostle meant to convey in the clause of 1 Corinthians 10, 11, when he said, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. He meant to communicate that the Corinthians, and so all believers, since the first advent of Christ, are to recognize that they are those who live in the final stage of the walking out of God's plan for humankind. In effect, believers at this point are those who are in the period of human history where God's plan for believers has been more fully revealed and who are in a sense in the last days. It is for this reason that the Holy Spirit uh, through Apostle Paul could tell us that the Lord is near in the sense of his second coming in Philippians 4, verse 5. Philippians 4, verse 5. It is, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, although the sentence, the Lord is near, may be interpreted to mean that the Lord is near to those who call upon him, but it's probably in the sense that the Lord will soon come that the apostle used it. And the Holy Spirit informs us that we are in the last period before Christ returned using the phrase the last hour in First John chapter 2 verse 18. First John chapter 2 Verse 18. First John chapter 2 verse 18 reads, Dear children, this is the last hour. 
And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So, the phrase that we are looking at, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come, is to tell us that we are in a privileged position that we can look at God's past dealings with believers and learn what we should or should not do. Nevertheless, we are in the final and decisive moment in the history of humankind with privilege of knowing how God responds to idolatry, sexual immorality, testing of him and grumbling because of Israel's experiences have been written down for us. In other words, as I said about children, if they could learn from their parents, listen to them, they would avoid their headache. That is a high privilege if you have, you know, if, if a child has a, a parent that would do that. But today we, you know, have parents who are more like the children and children are the parents. But anyway, that's what happens. If you can learn from the experience of somebody else. So we are in a privileged position. Although we are in the last position or the last stage of God's unfolding of his plan for mankind. But because of what we have written in the scripture, then we are so privileged. And we are in a position to be doing things not to dishonor God. Therefore, we should seize the privilege that we have to live in a way that is glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ and so that we avoid his displeasure or judgment. We should remember then, with all that, the message of 1 Corinthians 10, 5, verses 2, 13, which, that we've been studying, which again is this, enjoyment of God's blessing under a good spiritual leader will not shield you from his judgment if you displace him. Let's pray. As we close our study this morning, there may be someone here or someone uh, listening over the internet who want you to know of the love of God for you. This love was made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ who is God though God he didn't hold on to it. He left heaven, took on a human body so that he will go and die for you and for me. It is an expression of the highest love that that can happen. So Jesus Christ came to this planet, moved, taught, and healed, and did all kinds of things to prove that he is the Son of God. And when he finished, he was arrested. And of course, when they went to arrest him, they came asking about him and asked, who are you looking for? And they, and, he, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And they all hid the ground because God has put him. Yet he gave them the permission to go on and arrest him and made a mock trial of him so that even from what we know, that when he went into the praetorium, the beating he received was so disfiguring that if you knew him, and when he came out of that praetorium, you couldn't recognize his face because he had been so much battered. Yet, he didn't scream, he didn't cry, he didn't complain. And they took him and eventually nailed him on the cross. He didn't even cry, he didn't scream. But the last three hours on that cross when my sins and your sins were being judged upon the Son of God, it was so unbearable that he let out that cry, Eli, Eli, lost my katami. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken that you may have life. He was forsaken that you may have God's righteousness. All of these you receive by faith in him. So that's why the Bible said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What are you to believe? Again, the Bible said, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in him, you have life through his name. So believe in and escape God's judgment. On the other hand, if you say, well, I don't really care, my friend, you are knocking at the gate of hell. And hell is not a picnic. It is the most horrible place that is beyond human imagination. 
where God's wrath is going to be poured to the fullest. So escape it by believing in His Son, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will challenge us to be those who are very mindful of your word, who devote ourselves to it, and to take it very serious in our life. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen.